Today's guest and your mentor for the next 40 minutes is Dan Ziv, CEO at TouchNote, a creative platform for personal communication and the world's best app for sending real photo cards. It's a Mitra family favorite. Since joining the company in 2016 as Chief Product Officer, TouchNote have gone from strength to strength and Dan has since progressed into the CEO hot seat. Prior to joining TouchNote, Dan spent time in the Israeli military. He was also a lawyer and had one startup failure and one successful exit, thanks to a last minute table booking app called Uncover, which Dan and his co-founders scaled and sold to a competitor within two years. Together, Dan and I discussed the ups and downs of his entrepreneurial journey and how they've shaped him into the entrepreneur and business leader he is today. We discussed a number of interesting things over the course of our conversation, which included how taking command of 132 soldiers as a 21-year-old in the army gave him a crash course in leadership and built his resilience. We also discussed the importance of choosing who you work with carefully and how the complementary skills of his co-founders at Uncover contributed massively to its success. And finally, why he pivoted TouchNote into a subscription model and how he's navigated the startup through COVID-19. I've had the pleasure of working with Dan as a client and I've always found him a warm, positive and inspiring leader. All qualities that really come across in this episode as he shares some brilliant insights into how he's created such a positive culture within his organisation. It was such a pleasure talking to Dan and discovering more about the values that drive him and his team at TouchNote. So whether you're in a traditional industry and looking to move into a startup like he did, or perhaps you're considering starting up your own venture, Or maybe you're just about to step into your first leadership role. Whatever your situation, this episode is a great listen, packed full of fantastic learnings and brilliant career advice. So find a comfy spot, sit back, relax, and please enjoy my chat with the awesome Dan Ziv from TouchNote. Dan, welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. It's a pleasure to have you here today. I like to kick every one of these podcast episodes off with a 30 second review of your CV. So if you don't mind, take it away. Well, thanks for having me. First of all, James, a 30 second roundup of my CV. I am an ex MA lawyer, British Israeli. Um, and I came to London back about a decade ago to do my MBA, pivoted into entrepreneurship and tech where I founded a company with uh, two mates from business school. We sold that in 2015. And since then I've been a touch note, started off as a chief product officer and then went into managing, uh, being the managing director, now CEO of the company. Fantastic. And I think you're the first person to keep that under 30 seconds. So very well done. (laughs) You've had a fascinating career and I'm really looking forward to diving into it over the course of this conversation. But I wanted to start kind of at at the beginning. I know you spend a bit of time in the Israeli military, the IDF, and we've spoken to a few people on this podcast that have um, experience in the military, which I think has typically helped their, their future business career. So I'd love to learn a little bit about how that experience helped shape the leader that you are today and what sort of skills did you pick up during that time? Absolutely. Well, um, so I was in the military from the age of 18 till 22, as Israelis do uh, the compulsory service, but I was also an officer in the military, so I stayed an extra year and actually did three full years of being an officer and commander in, in the uh, Israeli Defense Service, which, you know, is a really extreme environment, obviously, but, you know, there's a lot of discussion in today's society around the role of managers and whether managers should be professional managers or should they be leaders and what is the difference between the two. The military is the kind of organization where you first of all are a leader and only afterwards are you a manager because you have to lead people into battle and you have to lead people into 
really extreme circumstances and sometimes very young people. And so mm-hmm. it's much more about the leadership than it is about management, if you'd like. Yeah. And, you know, having that grounding so early on in my career and that during three full years of, you know, leadership training, if you'd like, I think I now approach most of my management challenges from a leadership mindset as opposed to a, you know, perhaps academic managerial style, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the military is one of the first organizations, the US military is very famous for this, for, you know, leading with empathy and actually seeing the people behind the soldiers and so on. And I think, you know, that transition that happened in the military units, especially in the elite military units, then transpired in leadership in, you know, civilian leadership as well, and leadership in companies. So today, when I think of TouchNote and I think about the kind of environment we're trying to create and the values that underlie the company, a lot of that is through the same empathetic leadership style that I think is rooted very much in the military experience. Fantastic. That's really interesting. Um, and you, you clearly benefited from that greatly. I think, I think that there aren't many people, there aren't many jobs where you get to lead you know, potentially big teams at that sort of age and, and in that sort of extreme environment. So I can imagine that was a, a pretty seminal moment in your, in your early development as a leader. I just want to say that I, was, I think I was 21 years old when I had 132 soldiers under my direct command. And wow. I don't think I was necessarily ready for that back then, <laughs> looking yeah. back now, but it's the kind of environment you're in and it's what you're expected to do. And it, it's an extreme version of trial by fire. And you know, today I, I run an organization that is, you know, we would probably approach N10, 75 people right now. It's not dissimilar. And if you think of the challenges of COVID-19 and challenges of 2020 and the kind of uncertainties, obviously, you know, a very different environment, very different time, a very different challenge, but the uncertainties, the anxieties, and, and people are people, right? So what they bring to these environments is, uh, I think, quite similar. And therefore, I think there is a grounding and an education that you get very early on in a military experience like that, that you can then transition into these roles. Yeah, absolutely. And I can imagine the resilience you build up in those sorts of stressful environments mean that things like global pandemics, which we've never really experienced before like this, although still very challenging, I guess you've been used to being put in very difficult situations and not knowing what's coming around the corner. So I'd imagine that you're better placed than most leaders to to handle that. So that's, that's, yeah, fascinating, really. So I, I, I don't know if I'm unique in this, to be honest, but I do think that, you know, I, I just read a few days ago that Steve Jobs mentioned famously that resilience is probably the number one trait for any successful founder or you know, chief executive, because by definition, you are doing things and work that are really, really hard and that most people would want to quit or to stop doing. And therefore, the grit and the resilience and the hard work is innate to the traits you need to succeed in these roles. I don't think he considered the military when he <laughs> mentioned that, but it is true in the military that the level of grit that's required is sometimes abnormal and sometimes, you know, superhuman. And I think when you experience something like that and bring that over, that level of grit and, you know, um, persistence in the, in, in the mission, I think there definitely are transferable skills there. It's a really good point to be on. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, you went on to study uh, economics and law. You had some early entrepreneurial experience, I know, and then then became a lawyer before doing your MBA at LBS. So uh, I, I, I'm, I guess I'm interested in that early part of the career. What 
initially made you decide on law? And then what made you take the leap of faith to kind of leave and go do an MBA? Because uh, I guess we see a lot of people that make that decision to, to pivot careers and you've very successfully done that. So I'd love to learn a little bit about the thought process behind those moves. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I studied law and economics uh, at uni and I was always intrigued by law and economics was something that I kind of naturally went into as well. And I, I thought that would be a good grounding and a good education for anything I'd want to do later on. I, I did this in, in the Tel Aviv University in, in Israel. And the kind of natural course after that is to do a one-year clerkship where you train to become a lawyer and then you do the bar exam and you become a lawyer. And I think over, back then, over 90, 95% of student of graduates would go into that. And I, to be honest with you, I didn't think much of it and I just went with the flow. But I did find that I sort of gravitating constantly toward entrepreneurship. In my third year of uni, I founded my first company. And during my internship, I founded my first tech startup, which was a disaster. And it was uh, it failed before it left the ground, but it was one of the most interesting and learning experiences I had. I was very privileged to be able to do that while I was in the mentorship and learn so much from it and take so much from it to my next ventures. And then what I discovered as an M&A lawyer is that I preferred to do the business side of the deal than I was than I preferred to do the legal side of the deal. And as I gravitated towards that, I said, hey, you know what, actually, I want to sit on the other side of the table and you know, think of the commercials rather than think of the legals. And that's why the natural next step for me was to do an MBA. I came back to London and um, joined the London Business School. And you know, my business school does many things for many different people. But for me, it really was an opportunity to transform my career, to move, take everything I've learned both from the military as well as from my early ventures and from being a commercial lawyer and gravitated that towards entrepreneurship and tech, which was where my passions actually lie. So mm-hmm. I, I use that as a stepping stone to transition the career. Good stuff. And we hear differing opinions on 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 MBAs and about it clearly worked for you in terms of helping you make that transition. What are your thoughts on those uh, listening to this podcast who might be weighing up whether to, to do an MBA? Do you have a, uh, now that you've kind of been there, done that, um, be interested in your perspectives on that? Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, I, I get a lot of people calling me or emailing me and asking to have it, you know, asking for advice of whether they should embark on an MBA. I think maybe 10 or 15 years ago, people thought an MBA would be a good next step for any career. And I don't think that's true anymore. And I think that more than ever today, it's about specialization. It's about what you actually want. And there are people who call me and say, listen, I'm a trader in, you know, in, in, in a bank. I trade stocks and this is, what I, this is my passion. And I want to be a managing director one day in the bank. Should I go and do an MBA? And I say to them, well, I don't think so. It doesn't sound like, it sounds like you know what you want and it sounds like you're very close to getting it. And you, if you work through the motions, you will be able to transition to, into that role. And you're in the right industry, you're doing the right stuff. So why leave now for two years, take a break from your career and come back unless you need a break? Um, so not, I don't think every career today would necessarily benefit from an MBA. An MBA would be beneficial for anybody on a personal level because it's such a growing experience. Mm. But from a career perspective, I think there are other avenues people can take. Where I think an MBA is a unique opportunity is when you are a career jumper like myself. There's a term in the MBA lingo that's called triple jumpers. That's people who jump territory as I moved from Israel back to London and back to England. And I jumped industry, I moved from law to tech, and I jumped role from a lawyer or a legal professional into a business executive. Those kind of jumps, I think, 
an MBA is uniquely positioned to help you yeah. transition because it teaches you such a broad set of skills and really allows you to focus and so on. But that's a unique issue. And I don't think it, it makes sense necessarily for everybody. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'd imagine there are probably a few lawyers listening to this. And, and I have some great friends that have been in law for a long time. And, and I oh, think well, like sorry you, for you then. <laughs> well, they're, they're very smart. I think they seem to have the, the camp that are love law and will be partners and all that sort of stuff. And then those that are kind of frustrated lawyers that want to do a similar move to you. And I guess thinking about those friends of mine and, and anyone else listening to this, who might be wanting to to get, do the same transition that you made, what advice would you have for them as they look to kind of leave the stability of a legal career and move into the startup world? I'd, I'd love your perspective because you've been there and done it. So, you know, I've, I have seen, obviously, many people that, similar to me, were lawyers or in the legal profession and wanted to move into business. And those people, over the course of the last 10, 15 years, uh, you know, naturally come to me and ask for advice around that. But I've also seen quite a lot of accountants consultants and so on doing the same thing. And really interestingly, over the course of the last few years, I've seen designers, developers, and people in you know, the tech trade similarly interested in what they are doing and the, the, you know, the grounding and education they received, but slowly want to gravitate either into management or into entrepreneurship or a larger business sense. And there are so many developers that all they want to do is continue to develop their skills in iOS, Android, web, or continue to build infrastructure and so on. But then there's, an, there's a growing contingent that actually want to diversify, go into management. You know, maybe want to put the actual coding aside a bit and actually move on to other things. And my advice to those people is, first of all, respect the grounding that you get from your profession. You know, I have not been a lawyer you know, a registered bar in, in, in any in, in a legal framework for over 10 years. And, but I still use the tools and the experience I got from those great years. I think, you know, including my undergrad, I probably spent eight years in the legal field learning. And there isn't a day that goes by that I don't have a legal contract to go through as a CEO. I don't have an issue with you know, a supplier, an employee, a, a, you know, something, a, a client, whatever, mm. that requires a framework of, of, you know, an approach. And my legal grounding in education has been invaluable for me when I am doing my, in, in my current role. And it's not only that, you know, you can go through contracts in half mm. or, you know, a third of the time that normal people that aren't legally trained can, that's, that, that's a, sm a relatively niche skill. It's that the way you think about the world is really uh, formed by your education. And if you're an engineer, you think like an engineer. And if you're a lawyer, you think legally and so on. That doesn't mean you can't expand your thinking, but it is a framework and a grounding. And I think so many people are, understand that, okay, I've learned, I don't know, I've, I've become a accountant but now I hate accounting and I just want to leave. And I don't think that's the right attitude. I think you should really get grounding in it and understand it well, and then take everything you can out of that domain and then transition it and maybe expand and move on. I wouldn't be too quick to leave is what I'm trying to say. Mm. Try it out, really learn the skills and then transition forward. And you will, I think my experience is I always thank myself for those three, four years where I've really learned the profession and I took it with me. Yeah, I think it's brilliant advice. And I think we, we speak to a lot of people, whether it's management consultants, bankers, lawyers, 
you know, looking to move into to companies like TouchNote, dynamic, fast-growing tech businesses. And I totally get the appeal. But like you said, I think I think sometimes there's a there's a rush. The sexiness of the the sector is just so appealing, and especially if they're seeing their peers make that move. But actually, not everyone is going to make that transition that you did, you know, moving territories, moving sectors and moving role types. And I think sometimes you have to actually leverage what you've got. So some of the advice I've, I've given recently was, look, realistically, you're going to struggle to go from being a lawyer to a head of ops straight away. But if you actually transition in a legal role in a startup and it's a sort of dynamic, progressive place where it's a meritocracy and, you you know, if you add value, there'll be opportunities to move across the functions. And, and I've seen that very successfully happen many a time. So, yeah, I think I think the, the point is really well made uh, and I'm sure people listening will will take that on board. Wanted to come on and talk a little bit more about your you know entrepreneurial venture sort of post your MBA because you founded Uncover, which was a, a last minute booking app for top restaurants in London, which I know was very successful. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about Uncover and some of the, the, the early challenges that came with starting a business kind of post MBA? Absolutely. So Uncover was your classic tech startup where, you know, three guys got in the room and said, you know, this is an unserved market. Essentially what we discovered very simply, I think it was my, for my, my experience was on my 31st birthday and I went with my then partner to a restaurant. She booked a really fancy restaurant in the city and she booked it three months in advance. And then uh, we came in and the place was half empty. And this was before COVID. And, <laughs> and we said, what, what's going on here? And, he's, and the restaurant manager said, this is all cancellations and no-shows. And I said, oh, that's interesting. So actually, you have to book three months in advance, but how, what, what's your cancellation rate? He said, well, it's 25%. So then we said, okay, wait a second. There's a last-minute market here where if you can surface those cancellations and no-shows, for high-end restaurants that have very high food, land, and service costs, then they will be making their margin and you will have this prime inventory to sell to the, to the market. And my co-founders, uh, Chris Dino and David Sands, had the same experience elsewhere. And we got together, we were all in the same MBA class, talked about it, and decided to give it a go. So what we did in classic uh, you know, uh, hackathon style is we built a prototype of an app that essentially serviced 10 restaurants for same day availability. And uh, we show 10 restaurants. It was quite a pretty app from the, uh, on the front end, but it had absolutely nothing on the back end. <laughs> so you would book a restaurant and we would actually call restaurants begging for tables. Oh, wow. Really scrappy startup stuff. Then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> proper, proper scrappy. We gave this app to a couple of hundred of our friends, either from the uh, LBS student and alumni network or from London. And we thought we'd see, you know, 20 or 30 people over the course of a, a few months and then we'd get some learnings out of it. And we ended up sitting over 200 tables in restaurants across the city, including my co-founder having to, you know, bicycle frantically to a restaurant to beg for a table because we couldn't get them on the phone half an hour before the guys could come in. And we had all these stories around us. Trying. We actually had to shut it down four weeks into the experiment because we couldn't do our studies at the same time as doing this. There was so much demand. Wow. So we turned it off, but we got so much data out of that. We were able to then go out and raise our first funding. We raised a 1 million seed round wow. off the back of our experimentation, just after showing so much demand. 
And we actually graduated, uh, we, I think we raised uh, the round a week before graduation. So we graduated Incredible. straight into, <laughs> in, into the startup. That was just amazing. We uh, built an, a good team and we built a proper app that actually had a backend that we could service and so on. It was very exciting. By the time we launched the app, I mean, a month after we launched the app, in 20, this is back 2015, we were in the top and the new apps in the Apple Store. And we ended 2015 in a very unique position where we actually had really growing user base and it was going really, really well. And then we had the opportunity to quickly uh, sell the business and exit. And we said, okay, do we want to go for another round with this and make it bigger? Or actually, do we want to hedge our bets and, you know, and get some, a very easy and early win with this? And mm-hmm. it was a really good deal for us. We ended 2015 only, I mean, less than a year and a half after we launched the business and ended up selling it uh, to a bigger competitor in the market, which was great. And funny story is that two weeks after we sold, or maybe it was three weeks after we sold, we were in Apple's best apps of the year. We were number nine in the top 10 apps of 2015. Well, and I would say I wish we... I wish we would have waited with a sale for another month. <laughs> that would have probably been a bit better, but um, that, was a, that was a great experience. It was one of those really fast-track environments mm. where you, know, you sprint for a year and then suddenly this thing happens. Wow, incredible. And I'm sure something you'd be forever proud of. Uh, it's, not, it's not very often that someone scales and exits a business so fast. So what an experience. And I'm sure there'll be people listening to this that have, are either running a startup or, or, or thinking about venturing out on their own. So for those that are sort of at that, maybe at the beginning of that journey, what are your tips for getting it off the ground and, and scaling it successfully? Because you've, you've clearly did that at that time. So I did mention in briefly the startup I had before this, which was my big failure story, uh, you know, story of failure. And I actually I now conduct a talk once in a while in, uh, uh, in different forums about where I compare the two startups, you know, the mm-hmm. failure and the success, supposedly. And I just show how much success there was in the failure, because through that experience, I could learn for my, uh, uh, for Uncover. A few of the points I make there is, for example, you have to, it's all about choosing your co-founders and choosing mm. people who have complementary skills to you. I, I created my first startup with my best mate, who was also an M&A lawyer out of Tel Aviv University. I mean, you were practically the same person, okay. right? We came in with exactly the same skills. And with um, Uncover, Chris was extremely uh, good at the, at the numbers. He immediately became our, our finance guy as well as our marketing guy and could really crunch all the numbers for acquisition. Dave was a bona fide restaurateur. He, he knew all the restaurants in London and was passionate about the restaurant industry in a way that you can't fake. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. This is a world he absolutely loves. And so each one of us na- and I gravitated towards the technology and the product area. So the discussion between the three co-founders of, okay, who's going to do what was probably the easiest discussion we had because we immediately gravitated towards our different fields. Mm-hmm. That also allowed us to be then accountable for those different fields. So when we had a founder meeting, it was almost like three different startups within the startup where everyone was accountable for their business unit and had to report back to the other founders. And we were very accountable. We were very good friends, but we were always holding each other accountable for our different mm-hmm. fields. That created a very healthy tension where we were very good mates and we'd go out all the time and so on. But we also were very accountable to each other. Mm. And that's the kind of environment you want in a professional relationship like this. We also were very analytical about the steps we need to take in order for us to continue to the next stage. So when we did the 
MVP with a four-week test that I mentioned before, we knew exactly what KPIs we wanted to hit to be able to then go out and fundraise with that and what right. we needed to prove so that we were, forget the investors and you know, telling them the story, but we, we were convinced that this is a real business that can get off the ground. We were very, very clear about our objectives to get to the next point. Then when we set out, out to raise money, we actually sat down and said, okay, how much do we need to actually succeed here? Mm. Not how much do we want to you know, hit, hit TechCrunch with a great number or how much do we want in order to be able to just you know, pay rent, but actually how much do we need? What team do we need? And so on. And we went out raising around, I mean, 1 million seed rounds back in 2014 was a big round. Today, seed rounds are massive, but back then it was quite a big round. It's impressive. And the reason we did that is because we understood that's what was required to get us to where we need to go. So there, there were many learnings along the way, but I always say that in my first startups, I made every mistake in the book and even wrote some new mistakes into the book. Of mistakes. <laughs> and I took that learning with me to the next one. So I wouldn't be too you know, concerned if somebody's coming out of, uh, of the gate and you know, is fresh into a new startup and the, and the first one. I think the mistakes are part of the learning process here absolutely well i'm sure there are people listening to this that that uh, will be taking notes as they listen and now sort of off the back of that success you join touchnote uh, so you're ceo of touchnote the world's most popular postcard sending app a personal favorite in the mitra household we uh, have the subscription and it has been a fantastic uh, sort of thing for us to keep connected to my great grandma well my my daughter's great grandma and my parents and it's, honestly it's it's I, I thoroughly recommend everyone listening to to check it out but can you tell those that haven't heard of the app just a little bit more about what touchnote does and what your role as ceo involves Absolutely. So Touchnote is a creative platform for personal communication. We allow you to send uh, physical products, normally either postcards or greetings cards or um, photo-centric products to loved ones all around the world uh, through our apps and website. And, you know, the magic of Touchnote is that it, just like everything else, it has evolved. So this company started 12 years ago, way before I joined, and was one of the first companies to do photo card sending worldwide and as the world kind of pivoted into apps and into the current mobile commerce experience so has touchnote evolved and today in a world where you have whatsapp and instagram and facebook in so many ways to share photos i mean if you think of the world we lived in when we were kids I mean, you take a photo with a camera and if you didn't develop it into a physical photo, there really was no meaning in taking the picture. Mm -hmm. You'd have to develop mm -hmm. it. Today, the pendulum is swung the other way and you take thousands and thousands of photos a year into what we call, you know, the, the, the photo graveyard of your phone where you never view these photos again. You take thousands of them, but you never use them. Mm -hmm. So we think the pendulum is swinging back a little bit. People are developing more pictures. They're using their pictures for more meaningful things. What we're seeing is that people have, pivoted the way that they use TouchNote. And when, when I say the word postcard, I'm sure most of your listeners think of holidays and sending mm -hmm. postcards from holiday. But if you think of Instagram, you use your pictures on Instagram to essentially tell your life story. And it's a continuation of your own personal narrative in most cases. A mm -hmm. picture of with the kids when you go out for a nice vacation, a picture with the family when you are 
out in the garden or a picture of breakfast because the dog has did, did something funny and the, the breakfast is all over the place. <laughs> that, those are the kind of pictures you share on Instagram. And what we're seeing, people are using our platform in the same creative way. So it's like Instagramming in real life, if, you, if you'd like. Yeah. Although, because it's a one-to-one relationship, as you mentioned, grandparents and friends and family that are really close to you, we are seeing that touch is being used as the authentic method of communication. So we now speak of meaningful communication, and you've sent obviously many touch note cards. You know that the moment somebody receives a card like this, there's a moment where people feel really close to each other. You immediately get a nice WhatsApp or a call or something back saying, thank you so much for the card. And there's a moment there that people are meet each other in real life, if you'd like, through this card. And I think that's what's so nice, not to mention the fact that these cards can stay on fridges for years and people experience the, the same excitement and, and same moment. So the experience at TouchNet has really been a transition from an e-commerce company to a communication service. And that's why we've also pivoted into the subscription model where people can actually send cards on a regular basis. And, you know, most people in their life, if I ask you, listen, do you want to send a random person a postcard? You're like, "Mm, maybe, I don't know. (laughs) But if I say to you, hey, do you have a grandma? And you say, I actually do. And you say, well, would she appreciate receiving once a month a card from you about what's going on with your family and just, you know, sharing that moment? You'd be like, you know, that's a super kind thing to do. I'd love to do that. Most mm-hmm. people, I think, yes. are inherently kind people. And what we found is people find TouchNet as a really effective way of doing that. And we've doubled down on it. As mm-hmm. uh, the CEO, I have very much pivoted the company into this membership model where people are members of a platform and want to use it as a communication platform. I joined the company, I think, as a first, one of the first 15 employees. Uh, we're passing 50 employees now, and I think we're going to hit 75 uh, by the end of the year. And the company is pretty much doubled, you know, in every year. And the past four years I've been in the company, both in size and in headcount. So um, it's, it's been quite an interesting time. Brilliant. Yeah. And I, a lot of what you said really resonates for me, not only because you've been a client to me over the years, and uh, but as a loyal customer, you know, for me, it's the, the way we're able to use the app to connect is for me is the most beautiful part because my grandma, she's 92. I always used to be very embarrassed because she, she documented my childhood with pictures and photo albums. You go to her house, she shows everybody of myself and my sisters, and she has one with all our names on. Uh, and I, I always used that, James. Honestly, it's, it's amazing. But uh, not some of the outfits, I, I must say, but uh, it, it's always been a thing of pride for her. And I've always felt guilty because as we've gone online and, you know, uh, we email pictures and back and forth, but she doesn't have a computer and she's really not tech savvy. So TouchNote has been a real game changer for our family because we send her regular messages. We do it from my daughter, who is only four. Uh, so we use, she uh, dictates and, and, and we put it into the app. And it's, it's really lifted her spirits at a time where a lot of people are feeling very isolated. So thank you for that. Uh, and I'm sure, I'm sure thousands of other people uh, will be feeling the same way. And you've gone on a journey yourself, you know, from chief product officer to UKMD and now CEO over a uh, you know, four-year period. So can you tell us a bit about that journey? What, what for you have been the, the biggest challenges of, of transitioning through those different roles? Yeah, absolutely. So I joined as a chief product officer, you know, on the back of the success of Uncover and being the head of product there, I joined and really tried to um, scale up the product and engineering team at um, a TouchNote. And then what we decided to do is to expand in the U.S. And as a result, the CEO actually moved, the then CEO moved to the U.S. to open that office. And I became managing director of the U.K. and essentially took on 
the marketing uh, efforts in the UK and in the rest of the world. That was actually a really good learning for me because it's the first time I managed a P&L and was able to end-to-end you know, understand the market like the UK and try to grow it. This is especially a challenge because A, we have very large competitors in the UK, the card industry and the, even mm. you know, the, the card industry online is quite robust in the UK and also experience other countries. We you know, do TV ads in Australia. We have a big business in Germany. And so I was able to see other markets as well, which was really exciting and very challenging. And then as our uh, CEO left after eight years in the business, very well loved, I was the natural next, I think, fit to uh, take the role on. At that point, I was effectively managing about 80% of the business. So taking on the US side of the business as well was a natural next step for me. Mm. And I thought that that would actually be an easier transition because, as I said, I was managing uh, most of the headcount as well as most of the P&L. But actually, it was non-trivial. And, you know, someone said to me, you know, the difference between being the number one and the number two is that when the shit hits the fan and you're number two, you can always go to number one and say, so what do we do, right? (laughs) But when you're number one, then... There's nowhere to hide. (laughs) There's nowhere to hide. Everyone looks at you. And the other thing that people always said is, you know, as a CEO, you know, everyone obviously works for you. That's actually not true. What I found is that as a CEO, you work for everybody. And if it's shareholders, directors, employees, customers, vendors, I find that, you know, you're pulling every direction and you need to service the business. And especially if you have the kind of mindset where you want your team to do the best work of their lives and to really empower them, you find yourself working for them rather than uh, a vice versa dynamic. So it has been a non-trivial challenge. I just finished my first year as CEO. I'm very excited about it and I'm very proud of everything we've done, especially around COVID and navigating through this really tough time. Mm. But it's definitely been a learning process. And on what you mentioned just now around, you know, using the app over COVID, you know, loneliness has always been an issue in the UK that we've discussed. And, you know, we even had a minister that was in charge of the loneliness epidemic. And what I think we've found, I think the UK and perhaps in the US as well, in, in a big way, we have found some you know, or maybe rediscovered some of our empathy because mm. as the vulnerable people and el- the elderly were the most vulnerable um, during COVID-19, a lot of people really stepped up and decided to do something about it. And, and a lot of people, I'm very grateful, found TouchNote, as, as you mentioned, as a really good way to communicate with the elderly and communicate with people who are perhaps isolated during this time. Mm. And... You know, there's, if there is any silver lining in this, it is when you look at the kind of empathy that the, the, you know, the British people have towards the NHS as well as towards you know, the vulnerable people in our society. I think, you know, that's why Touchner has been so well adopted because Touchner is ultimately a platform for kindness and mm. for, a platform for meaningful, authentic, empathetic communication. And that's why as people become more empathetic, so do you know, our sales grow, if you'd like, so people want to engage in this way. Just, it's, 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 I think it's a good message overall. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I know from, from working with you that, that culture, the culture of TouchNet is incredibly important to you. Uh, and that's something that we find 
with candidates that we work with culture is outstripping in a way financials and and sometimes in terms of role i think people want to work for great mission driven businesses so how has the culture evolved for you over your time at touchnote uh, and what do you look for you know in terms of culture fit with candidates that are interviewing with you so it's so interesting because one of the first things that we did when i um became ceo is we actually codified the culture and I saw Jeff Weiner do this at LinkedIn, which I'm a very big fan of. And I said, you know, I, I think this is the right step for Touchnode as a scale-up to try to do. And with our team, we decided to first of all try to understand what are the values and behaviors that are important to the team. At that mm. point, we were already more than 40 people. Yeah. I think 35 or 40, actually. And we set out a, a process to try to surface what are the behaviors and attributes of the team that make it unique and that we want to continue going forward. And then with myself, we articulated a set of values out of that, which I think are, we only have five values. It's not something super grandiose, but it is very unique to us. And that has been perhaps the single biggest change internally that we have done that has had the biggest impact. Mm. And it had the biggest impact because, you know, in every single interview, and I do a lot of interviews, in every single interview, I mention our values. And in everything, and in most of our meetings, these values come up, not in the daily meetings, but in, in all hands or in our biweekly town hall where people can ask any question and I reply to it in earnest. Uh, our values come up all the time. And we just did an employee engagement survey uh, where we got amazing results. And one of the questions was, which, which value uh, do you think uh, your co- this colleague or that colleague uh, in the 360 reviews represents? And it's amazing how everybody could recite the values. Mm. Not because, and I think the reason for that is because they're not my values only. They are the team's values. It came out of the team and the company. And as a result, it's a shared perspective of how we want to manage ourselves and, and be managed. So this, is, this was not a, a top-down exercise. It was a bottom-up mm. exercise. And obviously, these are values I very much hold dear and share as well, but it came from the team. I think that was a really profound moment for our company. Yeah. And as a result, when we you know, discuss new hires with people like yourself, we first of all talk about the kind of person we want to bring in from their behaviors, attributes, character, and only then talk about other competencies as well. Yeah, great stuff. And I, I guess it, it, it's a nice segue on to... The current situation uh, and, and, and tackling the COVID-19 pandemic, because I think firms that don't have a strong culture will have really struggled in this this climate to, to retain talent and, and, and keep morale up. And I know you've done a fantastic job of, of steering the ship in, in these uh, tricky waters. So do you mind telling us a little bit about sort of how you've coped with the, the lockdown and, and the challenges that have come uh, and sort of, I guess, how I know you've actually described online that, that Touchdown has been relatively well positioned for the crisis and have had an uptick in business, which is wonderful to hear. So it'd be good just to get a bit of your your thoughts on, on, on the last few months. Absolutely. So our challenge, and I think many companies had this as well, was a, ta- a challenge of culture, a challenge of operations and keeping our our ship stable, functioning, and even high-performing. Mm. I think that was the biggest challenge. We went in literally in the space of seven days from a fully on-site, in the office, nine to six operation for years, right, for over a decade. And we have, at this stage, we have three offices, one in New York, 
one in London, one in Hyderabad in India, to a fully remote workforce. And, you know, we have our uh, development squads, we have our uh, design and growth teams, we have operations and people. A huge part of what we do is about meeting people in the office, you know, taking someone for coffee, having a chat, understanding what's going on, having mm. huddling. We had a whole culture of huddles. We would get people together for, to quickly resolve an issue and move on. The culture dependent on meeting each other in that daily interaction. And that was gone in a day. And, you know, if you couple with that, the fact that people had, people's anxiety levels were extremely high. People yeah. were very quickly, the furlough scheme came in and people were seeing their friends and family being laid off or furloughed in mass. And we had uh, one episode of uh, COVID-19 in the company, which luckily was after we uh, went into remote working. So there was no contamination there, but it, it hit home as well for us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, very thankfully, our teammate came out of it with no issue. Oh, good. So that was a really scary time. People were, I think, combating a lot of anxiety in their households as well. My parents and my, my wife's parents are, uh, were both in Israel while we were in London. If you think back to March and April and the size, the, you know, the scale of, you know, um, the epidemic was unclear and people were really worried about everybody in their lives and exactly how this is going to impact them. So we decided as a family to first of all move to Israel to spend a couple of weeks here to make sure we can take care of our, our family and then to navigate the complicated scenario in the, in the company as well as do everything you have to do in the household and then multiply that by 50 people who each one has their own predicament. You can yeah. see how that very quickly is a internal um, focus as opposed to an mm-hmm. external one. And we were so lucky because we didn't have the issues of you know, re- revenue dropping by 90% that other companies did as well, which obviously had, bring completely different issues. Uh, so what we decided to do there is first of all, work 100% remotely. Second of all, work on tools and systems and processes to make us as efficient as possible remotely. So we needed a, to have a balance between efficiency and flexibility for our employees to be able to work whenever they want to work, wherever they wanted to work, but also to be able to work efficiently through that. We implemented either task management tools or a process, other processes that allow us to work really, really effectively. And just like many other companies, ultimately we, we are a cloud-based company. You know, I can take my laptop with me to the moon and, and do the same work, although time zone would be an issue there. And if anything, for us, the remote work actually created immediate benefits because people didn't have to commute in. Mm-hmm. So actually they were more efficient. And, you know, this hyper-efficient mechanism of Zoom calls one after the other meant that people could be hyper-efficient with their time. But then that created huge amounts of anxiety and stress and even burnout for our team. So we had to level it out a bit and make sure that, you know, people were taking lunch breaks. Yeah. And there was, I think, a rebalancing of how we work and where we work. Interestingly, I think it was back in April, maybe end of April, we surveyed our team to ask, how comfortable would you be to go back into the office? Not because we wanted to, because we want to understand sentiment. Over 85% say they would be highly uncomfortable. So five out of five, not coming back into the office. And that was the environment we were in. We did the exact same survey or very similar survey rather 
a week ago, 75% asked to come back to the office at least one day a week. Wow, okay. So you can see how the, the, the dynamics are changing. And I think one of the things that are so important during times of you know, hyper uncertainty like now is to understand that sentiment is changing and you know, our attitudes towards our lives are changing. Like it's so cool to work from home every day for a month, but six months in, you kind of want to meet your friends and you want to mm. meet your colleagues and you want, you want to dress up nicely and come into work and you know, maybe huddle with, with your team. Absolutely. It doesn't mean you want, you want to do it every day, but it means that you probably see the benefits of it that you, didn't see, that you took for granted only six months ago. So mm. I think one of the things about managing change is that understand that change is not uniform. It's not a linear sort of thing. It, it constantly, you have to take temperature of your team and of your processes on a, on a constant basis and then adapt as you go forward. So we closed the office and we weren't in the office until this month. And I think as of next month, we will start to experiment with bringing people back in one or two days a week on a voluntary basis and assuming everyone can stay, you know, uh, maintain health and safety regulations, of course. And Good that's stuff. very much changed as the company and our environment mm. has changed with it. Yeah, it's, it's been such a such a unique set of circumstances and i guess uh, we, uh, leaders like yourself have had to adapt to what's been happening but it's it's great to hear that the business has has come out of this uh, almost stronger for it which is uh, I, I think what will be the case for a lot of a lot of businesses i certainly feel that way about jbm but i'm looking forward to returning to the office and, and seeing colleagues face to face that's going to be a nice nice thing in in a couple of weeks dan it's been a wonderful uh, i really enjoyed our conversation we're pretty much at the end but i just have three final quick questions that we always like to ask and the first one is about mentorship unsurprisingly so do you have a mentor yourself and and how's mentorship helped you on your career journey so very quickly i a huge proponent of mentorship and i generally think most people need mentorship throughout most of their life in different stages different people as a ceo and a first-time ceo i get a ton of help from many many people i have a coach i have uh, a very supportive board. Our chairman is a big mentor of mine. He's run businesses of hundreds of millions of pounds and I learn from him every single day. And I've had mentors all throughout my career. I'm a huge proponent of it. Every time I mention the word mentorship, I have to mention the late judge, Justice Edmund Levy, who I, uh, when I was a legal clerk, he was, uh, I clerked for him. And he was one of my wow. first and most significant mentors. He was a Supreme Court judge. And wow. things I learned in one year working with him, I think is worth a lifetime. So I think Fantastic. to get the right mentor at the right time, it's, it's for life. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and what does the next year hold for you, Dan, personally and, and for TouchNote? The next year for us is going to be a year where we are going to fully transition the company into a membership business, double and triple down on this amazing new value proposition that our customers have told us they find extremely relevant for their lives. And I think it's about continuing the message after COVID. The fact that everyone has found their empathy and their kindness during COVID means that I think there's an opportunity to continue this going forward. And I think we're going to be building on top of that community and on top of that strength for the year to come. Wonderful. And, and final question, Dan, for any listeners that are thinking about making a big career move right now, what one final piece of advice would you leave them with? A big career move right now. I think the only big advice I would tell them is that crises are huge opportunities for innovation. Uh, if you think of the companies that came out of 2008, think of Airbnb, you think of these massive companies that started off from, a, from not a pandemic, but from a global meltdown of a different sort. 
And if you are thinking of opening a business, if you're thinking of something innovative, there's never been a better time to do that than in 2020 or 2021. You need to find your grounding. You need to think really hard about how you're going to do it. But entrepreneurship or disruption happens during times of crisis. And I think this is, this is one of those moments. Fantastic. Dan, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us and being a great 40-minute mentor. We wish you and the TouchNote team all the very best for the months ahead. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, James. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of The 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.